0: Today on the podcast, I'm chatting with Peter Baines. Pete's someone I've known for about 15 years, having met him at a fundraiser in Singapore that I put on with some friends back in 2006, raising money for, a, for an orphanage that Pete had set up a couple of years before that in Thailand. I'm not going to do a huge intro because Pete does a good job of that um, at the beginning of the podcast, talking through his career. Um, except to say that Pete's an incredibly inspiring character, um, someone I've was fortunate to meet and still know. So, yeah, hopefully you enjoy the podcast. Um, there's a few sound issues, nothing major. You'll hear just the uh, the, the the internet dropped out for a minute, but um, yeah, hopefully you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Peter Baines. Hey Pete. Hey man. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, good, mate. It's uh, nice to, nice to join you.
0: Yes, yeah, it's, it's good to good to talk. It's well, we chatted a few weeks ago, but good to connect again. i yeah. um, normally normally when I do these podcasts, I do a bit of an intro, which I'll do. But um, I certainly wouldn't do yours justice. And you know, I think a really good starting point would just uh, you know get a snapshot, just get some insight into you know your background, your career, which I know you know the stuff we're going to talk about today it has all yeah. been motivated yeah. about stuff that's happened for years. So yeah, maybe just start with a kind of snapshot of you know, yourself and, and your life and stuff.
1: Yeah, sure, sure, Matt. So uh, for 20-odd years, I was with New South Wales Police uh, here in Australia and uh, uh, spent most of that time as a forensic investigator. Uh, so that was in invest investigating scenes of homicides and major crime and suspicious deaths and so forth. And and that was basically my trade. Um, I... I spent 10 years in regional New South Wales and came back to Sydney in 2002. And, and that was the year of the, the Bali bombings. And uh, I was deployed uh, to Bali as part of the international uh, leadership uh, contingent to identify those who died, to investigate the scene and uh, so forth. And, and um, I spent uh, some time over in Bali then and I returned to Australia then of course a big turning point was the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004 and, and after the experience I'd had in Thailand I was sent to Thailand as part of the international contingent and I was the leader of the Australian team and leader of an international site um, identifying the 5,395 bodies that we recovered uh, to send home and uh, spent most of 2005 either in Thailand or deploying teams to Thailand. And uh, uh, then 2007, I was uh, seconded to work for Interpol in Lyon in France on a counter-terrorism project and spent 12 months basically researching and writing a secret uh, paper on uh, the threats and trends around chemical, biological uh, radiological and nuclear uh, threats in in counterterrorism and in the terrorism space, and uh, from that time, at Interpol in Lyon in France, I was then asked to uh, spend some time with the UN Office of Drug and Crime in Southeast Asia, in a capacity building role around leadership and counterterrorism, and and uh, at the end of that, I resigned from the police and uh, started doing my own thing, and and then worked in um, uh, I was engaged by the government of Saudi Arabia to work in um, the city of Jeddah after some deadly floods there, uh, really around capacity building and uh, uh, structure around crisis mitigation for the government there and worked in Japan after the 2011 uh, tsunami. And and um, so that's kind of that side of it. And then, as you know, and as we connected, it was really through the the start of where all my love and passion goes now really is with uh, uh, the charity I started called Hands Across the Water, which was uh, I met a group of kids in Thailand um, on my last rotation uh, who'd all lost their, their, their parents and were living in a tent and uh, decided to do something to see if we could raise some money and started Hands, came back to Australia, then uh, a collective group of people uh, raised some money, built a home, and uh, and I, I guess a real turning point was when we went to open the home. And it was for me, it was well. Then who supports them now? What happens now? And uh, and that was where the long term commitment uh, was made. And uh, you know, find ourselves 15 years on. Um, you know, the challenges are, are bigger uh, than they've ever been. Um, in supporting those communities that uh, we we support today
0: yeah i mean is that really 15 years on like i'm feeling my age now but that, i mean that you know literally that was you know kundrachana round a tree with a number of orphans and now that is you know how many how many orphanages and 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 children and you know what's the size today that's hugely expanded since that time right
1: Yeah, it certainly has got a lot bigger. It's um, like we started with that one home and now we're in seven different locations in Thailand and uh, spread all over the map. And as you know, as a resident of Thailand, uh, uh, getting round, uh, you're kind of in and out of Bangkok. So it it makes it uh, challenging to visit all of the locations. But uh, we get there and and. there's about 350 kids who are uh, residents across the seven properties. And uh, um, and we've got, you know, we've been supporting kids through university for quite a while. We've got a, a growing alumni of kids that have graduated. and And the thing for us is we measure really our success in the choices they have when it comes time to leave, as opposed to number of properties or number of homes, because, you know, Matt, I think it's, without question the best place for kids in all things being equal is within a family mm, uh, sure. when, when when that doesn't exist well that's the type of uh, facilities that we provide is an alternate and you know we have the government bring kids to us a hospitals call us, a police call us, and and ask us to take on kids who seemingly have no other option and uh, but as I say the real success for us would be having none of those residential homes and focusing on the long-term education and skill development of the kids, which is where we're at uh, with a lot of our time now.
0: Yeah, for sure. I just going back to, you know, those times in Thailand, which were 15 years ago. I mean, I, I imagine, you know, things are very different now for you both, you know, individually. I mean, there must've been some big shifts in your, in your life at a personal level going through that. Um, You know, I've had a little bit of exposure to it, but certainly nowhere near to the scale you have. I mean, Can you talk a bit about that? What, you know, what that experience of coming into Thailand, I mean, everyone remembers that who is, you know, old enough to remember it. It was a a shocking time and it went on, you know, for a long time afterwards. And you're in the thick of it, identifying uh, and identifying the the foreign bodies or Australian bodies, right? Yeah. So just, you know, tell us about them. What is the effect on that, you know, at a personal level? How does that emotionally affect you? And what do you bring away from a situation like that?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly been exposed to something like that is, um, um, y- you know, you remain uh, forever changed and uh, in both positively and, uh, and not so positively ways. And uh, um, I talk about uh, the impact personally was that there's uh, the only thing that remained the same for me uh, from going to Thailand and coming back was that I've got three kids Um, nothing else (laughs) remains the same you know like um, what it meant on a personal level and uh, um, then my my work level and everything um, changed uh, as a result of that uh, uh, time in Thailand and and um, you know I'd like to think that the the impact has been more positive uh, than negative and uh, you know uh, arriving and flying into uh, uh, Takua pa, uh on a police helicopter and landing in the, the schools of the, uh, the grounds of a school there. And, and y- you could smell the death, you know, hmm. there was three and a half thousand decomposing bodies at a temple called Wat Yan Yao. And uh, um, the smell of death is unmistakable once you've, uh, once you know it. And uh, And we could smell that before we uh, saw uh, or arrived at the temple. And, you know, arriving at the temple, there was three and a half thousand bodies on the ground and uh, they were in an advanced state of decomposition. And the question that you posed was, was it Australians or foreign nationals that were identifying? Well, until they're identified, you don't know. Yeah, right. For sure. uh, Yeah. So uh, the process is just to identify absolutely everyone and there was not the only priority that we attached was uh, to kids um the the you know the work that we did we started with the kids to return them to their loved ones uh, throughout the world and throughout thailand and uh you know matt there was um uh, some amazing experience uh, meeting uh some of the families uh, both thai and foreign nationals and australians who had lost um you know loved ones it was uh there was some uh, moments that will stay with me forever. And I felt incre- incredibly privileged uh, to be there. And, uh, you know, and I think the where we are now with hands, uh, people have uh, asked me previously, was it this, uh, you, you know, almost a response to what we'd seen in so much bad was to create something good. And, and it wasn't that. It was just that uh, meeting the kids and then uh, being invited by a colleague I'd worked with from the UK to... To do something, it just made sense, mm. and uh, and then starting uh, made sense, and and I guess it's it's the reason why we've always continued is that we've got the capacity, and I feel it would be wrong and selfish to stop, and uh, you know these kids that we support throughout Thailand, um, they didn't choose to be uh, born into circumstances. Uh, that they're in, and you know, so many of the communities and kids that we support now uh, have no direct uh, correlation to the tsunami. You know, of the seven properties, there's only one of them that is uh, directly related to the tsunami. And and as we know, 15 years on, there's not many kids now who are of that tender age who were directly affected. And uh, um, and you know, the ability and the uh, opportunities we've had. Um, you know, has certainly been positive um, for me, and and you know, I'm richer now in every measure of life uh, because of Hans. Um, mm. You know, is just a a good thing, I guess.
0: Yeah, many of those kids, like you say, I mean, that's 15 years ago. So, I mean, when I I visited. It was probably two years i can't remember a year and a half after you'd established the the initial orphanage and so the most of the kids there at that time were in fact pretty much all of them apart from some coming in you know off the street were yes. from the tsunami but now i mean yeah you know, m- many of those have, i remember meeting one at your event one young lad was it boy i can't remember boy or one one young lad who's who had gone into you know a professional role which must be hugely inspiring to see when you kind of remember back and then you see these kids you know in in families in jobs and actually you know in a life they hadn't probably envisaged you know in in any term at
1: all oh absolutely you know like you you met in those early days Kunrochina, who came yeah came down from bangkok and uh um she faced a a battle with uh, breast cancer in 2007 and and uh, we were able to financially support her uh, into private health care or private hospital care. And, and um, um, you know, it certainly saved her life at the time, but she uh, then that metastasized and turned into, uh, uh, into bone cancer. And, and, you know, she passed away very sadly um, in 2000 or two years ago, just over two years ago. But, um game who it might be that you met um he was the first of our students to to graduate from uni and um and he went on to he he uh graduated with a law degree and uh he uh came back as a student uh from the home to take uh, the director's role of that kunrachana had had and uh you know, to see that and, and to see the, the, the success of the kids that, uh, that have left the home. Um, you know, we've got kids working in hospitality with five-star, you know, properties across the globe. We've got, you know, one of the girls who we supported with, uh, uh, she did a business degree, works in an advertising agency here in Sydney. And, and, you know, that's the thing that's I think is most satisfying is, and I think the best use of donors' money, and one is uh, keeping the homes operating, keeping the kids fed and healthy and providing medicine and all of that, and particularly for the HIV home that we took on in 2010. But to see the kids uh, grow and, um, and flourish is, um, you know, that's a, a real deep sense of satisfaction.
0: You there? Yep.
1: Yeah, I dropped out.
0: I think that was me that dropped out. Um... Yeah, some and I, I, had obviously now we're dealing with a, you know, pretty unique situation for most people, um, and as I was kind of jotting down to what to chat to you about, I kind of wondered, this is obviously different to a tsunami, it's different to a natural disaster, but there are parallels, you know, certainly with the societal um, response to it in many ways. Are you, are, do you see that? Can you comment on that? Are you have you been, you know, asked to 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 do anything, or is this totally kind of out of your remit?
1: yeah i think the um you know the, the, there's a a word that we we've all heard and it's unprecedented people talk about it and you know but every crisis or disaster that I've been involved in is unprecedented because of the unique factors of it but um you know the other thing is that we uh the lessons and the challenges that we face in crisis um are not unprecedented and um and I think that there's, there's real correlation between um, the challenges and the learnings that we took from uh, what I saw in Thailand and what I saw in Japan and, and, uh, and Saudi to what's been faced uh, now by different leaders in government and health and, and business as well. And, you know, there's many lessons that we can take from uh, different crises and just different disaster situations to, to help ourselves uh, through these times.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, and it's not something you're, I I imagine you're more focused on, you know, how to, you know, support the charities in in the best way right now, as I'm seeing and, and, and get those through what's a tricky time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, personally, um, you know, I work with different organisations and, and as you said, have been called upon to provide advice and, and so forth, around that leadership and and uh, the experiences that we 've had and and that continues you know i 'm working with one of the big banks here in Australia around um, advice to their leadership team and uh, what just what 's the lessons that we took from our time in these international crisis areas, and then also what can we expect? Um, you know how do we move out and how do we lead our teams through these and you know, like our deployments in Thailand went for over 12 months. Like there was an international uh, uh, um, a presence there from January through to February, um, 12 months later. And so that long-term uh, sustainable commitment is something that is not new and how you lead and manage teams through that, um, the, the lessons uh, from then apply to now. And a lot yep. of it's about you know, providing um, detailed information because with information you get understanding and, and understanding the energy flow that will go through. And, and, um, and I think we see that in Australia right now with the lockdown that we've had As there was people certainly embraced it. And there was a, you know, initially it was, well, this is all new. How's it going to work? And then we went into a stage of acceptance and understanding and compliance and and I think very quickly we're approaching a stage now where there's uh, a level of complacency and uh, in you know lack of tolerance of around it and and this is where a lot of work's going to be required by the leaders uh, if if they want to maintain it um, to help people understand why so it's You know, I think it's uh, those four stages and then obviously the exit and how do we either finish or how do we provide continuity and and so forth. It's, It's something that I can look at our crisis response to somewhere where we might've been there for a couple of days through to um, a 13-month deployment in Thailand. I think there's so many parallels that exist because yeah. really it's just about, you know, leading people through projects and change and crisis and, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, it's a, a terrorism event, it's a, um, you know, a, a viral infection like we've got now or, or something different like the humanitarian response in Thailand. The, the challenges contextually that we'll face, I think, are very similar.
0: Yeah, for sure. This whole theme of leadership, I know it's something you're very focused on and have been right since those, you know, experiences you went through in in Bali and in Thailand. And certainly now, you know, I'm speaking to a lot of different people every day, you know, in, in a business sense. And you can see the importance in, you know, certain values and skills emerging through, you know, a situation like this which is a bit of a segue to a story that I really wanted to probably prompt you to tell because it's one of my favorite. I know that you have told this ever since Thailand. Thailand is a place that you know intimately now. It isn't a place you knew intimately when you touched down 15 years ago. Um, And I I think it was in your first book. Um, You talk about, you know, kind of breaking that cultural barrier, which is something that I'm personally really passionate about, you know, breaking down barriers. And it's not always easy, right, when there's no language there's you know different backgrounds in terms of how you've been brought up but I know that was a challenge you you and, your, and the team faced right with the uh, I, I suppose it was the Thai military right that were doing the the recovery effort but yeah can you just talk a little bit I think you probably know the story I'm prompting I love that story and it's such an interesting it's something that personally has inspired me in how you dealt with that you know yourself and the team in bridging those kind of cultural, cultural gaps at such a tricky time
1: Yes, are you, you're referring to working with the Thai soldiers, are you, at the temple? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't want to tell the story, so I better shut up. because <laughs> yeah, <that's okay. laughs> yeah, so we were at um, a place called Tata Chai, which is just uh, uh, north of the Saracen Bridge, the, connecting both uh, uh, Phuket Island and the, and the mainland, and uh, um, we'd established a site there where we moved all of the shipping containers from up at... Uh, uh, up at Wat Yan Yao because the the bodies were were stored in shipping containers and frozen until we're identifying them and and it was a really big site at uh, at Tatachai and we had the Thai military there and and uh, their role was to go into the shipping containers, lift the shipping containers off the shelves, put them on trolleys and wheel them throughout the site and um, and you know a pretty pretty I guess difficult job just to keep doing day after day and. And I think the biggest challenge that they faced was that they had no end in sight. And you talk about um, the current challenges that we're facing uh, as a community right now. And the biggest thing I hear is people, and it's something that we face at hands, is not knowing when things will come to an end, when we'll be able to travel again, when we'll be able to return to normal. It's that unknown. And, and the, uh, the Thai soldiers were, their role was to lift these bodies down, put them in the, trolleys and Willow throughout the site. They were working 12 hours a day and uh, they worked seven days a week. And uh, when they finished work each day, they'd camp overnight in the tents uh, at the site. And, and they were certainly losing their enthusiasm for their work and uh, it's completely understandable. But the important part to the story was that each their lack of enthusiasm or their lack of motivation as time went on, because some of them had been doing it for six and seven months and they didn't know when this would come to an end. And uh, while we rotated in and out, so many of those guys, they, that was where they were. And uh, tough conditions and away from their families and homes. And, and um, as they lost their motivation, the productivity at the entire site um, started to decline and we lost productivity. And it didn't matter that we had all of these forensic specialists and odontologists, biologists, and police specialists from around the world, uh, but the productivity continued to decline. And I looked at it and, uh, and, and felt responsible. And the first lesson I took was that uh, as an organisation, we have to value the contribution of everyone. And it doesn't matter the, the technical competence. If we don't value the contribution of everyone, well, it'll fall over. And that's what was happening here. And, the second thing I looked at was, well, how do I motivate these guys? And um, one of the things that the Thai people, uh, they're incredibly passionate and incredibly patriotic. They love everything about their king, their queen and the kingdom of Thailand. And, and what, would I, what I saw would happen each day is that they would stand and learn, uh, stand and sing the Thai national anthem and uh, uh, at the start of each day and all the international teams, we would line up behind them out of respect. And of course we didn't sing. We didn't, you know, it wasn't our national anthem. We didn't know the words, and it was in Thai. And, and, um, but I saw the passion. I saw the motivation that the soldiers had and how deeply connected uh, to this national anthem that they were. I saw when they were singing, they had their shoulders back and have really strong voices, but once they stopped singing, you see the physical change, their shoulders had slumped forward. And, i would skulk away under the palm trees and I'd have to go out and find them and hunt them out to do the job again. And, uh, and uh, I looked at it and thought, well, and as the productivity was declining, I was the leader at the site and I felt responsible for this. And I asked one of the guys I was working with to uh, get me the words, the Thai National Anthem. And uh, as the Australian team, as we travelled to and from uh, work each day, uh, we learned to sing the Thai National Anthem. And this particular day, we stood up and uh, we were behind the soldiers and they started to sing and the Australians all pulled our, out our song sheets and we started to sing the Thai National Anthem as well. And the Thai soldiers swung around and had this look of amazement on their face, you know. They would have, they would have been blown over, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. absolutely. Uh, you know, and, um, and I say, did we sing that National Anthem well? Well, hell no, but did it matter? <laughs> uh, you know, and it, had this, uh, it had the desired effect because the, the Thai soldiers saw that we connected with them on something that was so important to them in a real meaningful way. It wasn't about money. It wasn't around giving them anything. It was around connecting um, in a real, in a way with integrity and, and honesty. And, <coughs> and, and, you know, from that point, um, the Thai soldiers were just so keen to do anything to, to support us and please us. Because we demonstrated this shared alignment of values.
0: It's an really awesome story, and like like I say, it's something that's inspired me. And there's massive lessons from that that parallel into all areas of life, both personally and particularly in business. Which I know you've gone on to, I'm sure, use that as a as a as a story to inspire leaders within companies, right? With the, how they work with employees. You know, whether it's in different offices, different teams, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think Matt, you know, like the lots of businesses uh, particularly in the uh, for-profit space and commercial space uh, reward their, their staff and their teams and so forth financially. And that's cool. Like we all need that, but um, you know, if, if, if that's your only motivator or if that's your key motivator, it can be a race to the bottom and a pretty shallow experience too. And, and um, and I think it's uh, uh, for us, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an option to, to pay these soldiers more or uh, to do anything like that. But I don't think any money that we could have given them would have had the, uh, the lasting and the, the deep impact of doing something that was so meaningful. Mm.
0: It's uh, that whole, I mean, yeah, the meaning, when, whenever you do these things, I mean, I mean you know, the, the meaning. Full part of it you know the purpose that the human connection is what you end up taking away well, I remember when I, I when I visited the orphanage in Calhoun which was was brief but also dramatic in terms of you know my own life yeah. it kind of just put things into perspective mainly because you know those kids after just a few years had so much hope and you know he, yeah. you kind of deal with people every day that often a. Uh, you know, have things out of perspective, which no fault of their own, but, you know, you, you tend to deal with things within your own layer of perspective. But um, yeah, certainly when you, when you're around these situations and the amount of, I suppose, gratitude is probably the word, but f- for me, it was really perspective um, back in, you know, the other life
1: coming back to yeah, the. Yeah. And I think, you know, with people that we continue to take over to Thailand and continue to have their own experiences and, you you know, with these bike rides that we've, we've run for so many years. And, and we hear that, that, you know, those words that you talk about of gratitude and perspective Mm. and, uh, and it's not something that I talk to people that they will take from it because I think it would almost sound arrogant to say, you'll get perspective. And it's never something I lead with, but it's something that I hear uh, people come back to me and say, this is what I've taken. Even from, when I'm sharing stories at conferences and so forth, they just say it's just given me perspective and it's, you know, it's really interesting. We had um, uh, a, a group of about 80 real estate agents from Australia and New Zealand and the UK riding um, with us in Thailand in March of this year, and uh, and it was right amongst uh, when the uh, COVID started, and uh, and they returned uh, to Australia at the end of the ride, having been r- ridden through Thailand and and such a beautiful country and such a great way to see it on the back of a bicycle, and uh, and then arriving at the home, uh, having gone through personal you know hardship and and real challenge to get there, and. And um, and then speaking to some of them when they'd come home and they said it was really obvious the mindset that they were turning up to work with uh, compared to those in the office who had not had this cha- uh, experience and they were coming back with a, a real level of groundedness and perspective and calmness and ready to face the challenges because that's what they'd been doing on the bike for the last 10 days and doing things they'd never done before. And, it, that, you know, them feeding back to me saying, I'm just in such a better position to deal with this crisis that we're facing than my colleagues who are just seeing this is the biggest thing ever. And they're going, well, you know, let's put it in perspective. Yeah, I- I mean, as I
0: as you know, I, I mean, I I haven't done it for a couple of years, but I did. I ran the walk for about 10 years, but very yeah. similar. It was a, you know, it was taking people from that uh, corporate environment, you know, not necessarily. Well, it's similar to the bike ride probably because, you know, we end up doing a little bit of volunteering and walking. But yes, I mean, it's so rewarding at a personal level yeah. when people come back and you, you know, those kind of shifts. And like you say, I mean, it, it's not everyone. It's just certain people for certain reasons. I don't know. Come back with a you know, a real shift in how they see things and, and yeah, very lucky to have experienced that. I think myself and, and seen other people go through that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: On, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about really the role of business. You've obviously, you know, you've come from, from the police force, you've, you've set up a charity. You've then, you know, you, you, you speak, um, at businesses at conferences and then you do your CSR consulting. I mean, how do you see the role of business in the nonprofit sector? You know, I have my own opinions on it. I think we've talked about it before and I I feel it's really changed in the last 20 years. Like you used to have charity and you had nonprofit and I always feel the lines are blurring. And I think personally after what's happening now, I think they will blur even more. I think, you know, obviously there is for profit and nonprofit for, for reasons of structure and, you know, business models, but you know, how do you see the, the role of business going into the future when it comes to to charity and, and do you see those lines kind of merging?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, um, and I think we do share a lot of values or, or thoughts on this, Matt, from the conversations we've had together over the last you know ten or twelve years or so forth. And uh, and I think the um, uh, you know the, I think my my work in this area within the CSR is that there's basically two two groups or two approaches to it. One is around uh, and I'm talking the relationship between business and charity uh, at the moment. And I see that there's either a philanthropic approach where business um, gives charity money and and they think that's the beginning and basically the end of it. And uh, then there's the uh, true corporate social responsibility approach where you have um, shared value from uh, through the entire supply chain and, and I think that's the area that interests me is where we can turn that relationship uh, for the business and for the charity one into more of an even footing and one where it becomes a, 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 a positive growth uh, center uh, for the a profit center for the business, as opposed to a cost center. And it's something that I wrote a lot about in, uh, in the book doing good uh, by doing good, which I published a number of years ago and, and it was interesting, The um, I didn't come from this CSR uh, background and uh, that's not my, um, I wasn't in corporate, I was police, crisis and then formed a charity, you know, so I didn't come with the learnings and the knowledge and, and in some way the bias of, of what had gone before and I basically just went my own way because everything was so new. I'd never been involved in charity before but... What I quickly learned was that for for hands across the water, the charity to exist and grow and have relevance um, we couldn 't rely upon sympathy um, there are sixty thousand charities in Australia, and I'd suggest to you that that most of them are doing a good thing and uh, and can and should be supported so how were we ever uh, going to have presence and and relevance in Australia if all I was doing you know was relying upon um, the, the stories of the tsunami and so very quickly I learned that for us to to get supporters, both individual uh, business and corporate and retain them was we needed to be uh, more of a service provider and we needed to be providing individuals business and uh, and larger organizations with value and uh, return to them and uh, and that was kind of what I started then is is this consulting around what I picked up as CSR. And, and I guess it was um, um, somewhat or quite unique in that I had uh, Wiley, which is Australia's biggest uh, business book publisher come to me and say, would you write a book on it? Because what you're doing, no one in Australia has written anything ar- around this. There's a lot of uh, text out of the US, but it's a very different feel. And, um, and we actually debated for months before I agreed and, uh, and wrote the book, but it was really upon the relationship between business and, and Matt, the time that we're in now is the best example of what I've been talking about for ever since I wrote the book, because what we're seeing now in the conversations that I'm having with charity and business is that if the relationship has been one based upon uh, a philanthropic approach if it's that the it, when we look at it on the balance sheet that the support of their favorite charity is a cost center to the business right now businesses are saying where do we cut costs I guarantee mm. you the first thing that they're looking at is the charity relationship and then the L&D and these type of costs which are seen as discretionary spends and the risk and this is what happens is that in these types of times this is when people lean inwards and rely upon charity most. When we've got unemployment rates pushing through 10% in Australia, when we've got increased poverty and, and, and homelessness and those type of things that are going to occur, they're relying upon the charities. But if the charities in the most you know, dire need are then having their funding cut because business uh, can't afford to support them, well, it's a downward spiral. And all it, and what it does is confirm that i 've been talking about and, and advising business on for many years now is that we have to turn the relationship into into one that it 's a profit center for the business and that that profit center can be around uh, customer retention staff attraction uh, brand differentiation new markets new products all of these type of things and because there's a natural response when we say you should profit from charities. People say, well, that's not why I do it. I don't do it to get anything back. And part of it is I go, well, I call bullshit on that because we all do things as a driver within us. But people feel as that they shouldn't be expecting a return. But where I come from within the charity sector, I know that if you're supporting me as a business leader, as a CEO, or as an individual, if, if it's important to you, if it's contributing to your personal or business growth, you'll stay invested. And, and so, so right now, um, it's, it's a case and sometimes, some in the, in the business world and now I think two things will happen in this current community and for those that I'm speaking to, they'll say now is not the time. And others who 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 have a more strategic view and a longer term view and can open be open to this bit beyond the philanthropic space is now is absolutely the time uh, to invest in this because when we come out, we know, and particularly with the new generation, uh, there's a there's a consciousness that consumers are attaching to their purchases. We've got graduates coming out of universities who are saying, I'm looking at uh, an accounting firm, for example, and saying, I want to know what you offer around me Mm -hmm. being able to pursue what's important to me. We know that people are taking jobs based upon what the organisations are offering from a social uh, uh, point of view. And if they're not doing it well, well, they're not attracting the best talent. And all of this contributes to a business doing well. And that's the space it can offer. And I think that there's, there's got to be a shift. And if now's not the impetus for it, well, I don't know what will be.
0: I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I honestly think in many ways, it was already like this. So I, I think this, you know, you hit on a couple of points there. The business cases were there actually, but people just weren't exposed to them or understood them. Yeah. You know, you just talked about taking employees on a bike ride and they come back to the office. I mean, you, when I was in a kind of, structured corporate job if I had that stuff introduced to me rather than me introducing myself I wouldn't have left that company I'll be with them 10 years later and I think there was just not the research before and there's probably more of a focus with the millennial and Gen Z um, you know generations in terms of like you say now there is research so it becomes a business case but I don't know if it was that it wasn't before it's it's just that you know now people know because of data and yeah certainly I think um, I'm hearing what you're saying through the conversations I have. There's, there's a real divide there actually between people who see the future and are positive about this kind of symbiotic relationship and the need to kind of fix based on good partnerships where there is, you know, pay each way. And I don't mean money, but, you know, there's, yeah. there's a payback each way versus the old model and the old model, like you say, will drop away. I mean, you know, it can't survive in a, in a time like this because it's the first thing you take off the you know, yeah. off the balance. There's a bird in my house just come in so hopefully it doesn't fly into the computer but yeah the wonders are living in the country. Um, Yeah I'm I'm pretty much pretty much at the end um, you know kind of covered what I wanted to cover and um, you know I just before we knock off really was keen just to ask you about I know that you know you're having to pivot like many businesses are you are looking at different ways of doing things I know you have a strong focus on you know physical activities that raise a substantial amount of you know, funding for your charities out here, your bike rides that you do, you know, a number each year with leaders, CEOs in Australia. So I know you, I've just seen some stuff on social media. You're now, you're looking at kind of pivoting that into something new. Do you want to just talk about that for a minute? So our listeners understand it and how they can get involved if they want to.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Matt. The, the As you say, a the, the big focus for us has been on leading shared experiences and having people riding bikes in Thailand and, uh, our, our passports are all locked away at the moment and, um, you know, and that, that, that's had a significant impact on our ability to raise funds. So what we've done is we've created a virtual bike ride. So we've mapped it and uh, through a couple of different platforms we'll have uh, riders can jump on and they can be from anywhere in the world, jump on um, as part of this 30-day challenge in June where they ride 800 kilometres, which is from uh, Petchaburi south of Bangkok, down to Kalak. And it's the ride that we do. Uh, awesome. It's been recorded on uh, GoPro as we speak. Uh, so the riders each day will jump on either at 7am or, or midday and they will ride that length of road that we would be riding uh, so they get to see the, the sights and to feel the road as they, they ride. They can do it from the comfort of their lounge room, their, uh, from the garage or wherever, or even if you're out riding a bike uh, through your own neighbourhood and where you normally ride on the road uh, through Strava, all that data uh, collects as well. So it's a, a virtual challenge. Um, and uh, for the month of June, we'll have some great guests who will be contributing and, and, and talking with the groups because there's the option of being in our zoom room where you ride with a couple of hundred other people and awesome hear from special guests. And we've got some amazing people who are, um, who are going to be interviewed during the rides and it's only $49 to sign up. And we're asking the riders to, uh, to, to, to raise $500. And uh, you know, you, you look at that and say, is it the right time to raise money? And, and you break it down, it's $16 a day that you need to get someone to support you. And if we haven't got 30 friends with $16, we probably need to uh, expand our social network.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, like you say, people will say it's at the right time. But when people have been involved in these things before, it lifts the spirits. It keeps people motivated. It, you know, gives you something else to, you know, be positive about. So, yeah, cool. Sure. Yeah, best of luck with that. I can't. Do it from here, I don't think, but maybe there's another way I can get involved. I'll, I'll have a look. Maybe I can pivot it another way and, and, and walk it. It's a bit far to walk, though, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, just get on a spin bike. That's all you got to do.
0: All right. I don't think there's one in, in my little town here, but I'll, <laughs> I'll see what
1: I can do. I'd love to get involved, so. Good on you, mate.
0: Cool. All right, Pete. It's been, it's been really good to chat, and, um, yeah, I look forward to hopefully catching up face-to-face, either either here in Thailand or, or in Australia at some
1: point. For sure. Thanks, Matt. Good to chat. Cool. All the best, mate. Bye, bye mate. Cheers. Bye. This is a podcast from Task. Task helps you create and measure impact. For more information, please visit task.io.